Today we resume what has become an annual tradition here at Eastgate, the Summer Blockbuster Sermon Series, where we consider some religious and spiritual themes in popular movies. Now, there aren't a lot of new movies being released this summer, so I thought we'd look at some older movies, some classics. These are films that at least I, and I think others agree with me, can watch again and again. And the first up is the adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, which is standard in many uh, high school curricula. It became an Oscar winning film itself, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's the story of a young girl, Scout, I believe she's six when the film opens, growing up during the Great Depression, 1932, in the American South. She has an older brother, Jem, two years older than her, and then they're being raised by their father, Atticus, a widower whose uh, wife, the children's mother, seems to have died about five years ago. He's capably assisted by their hired African-American housekeeper, Calpurnia. Atticus is a lawyer in a small town, and he's faced with the challenge of defending an African-American male who's been, as it becomes clear, wrongly accused of raping a white woman. And the story is really a coming-of-age story. In many ways, the novel is a love letter to Atticus, this exemplary father, exemplary lawyer, exemplary man. And in fact, a few years ago, the American Film Institute um, had a ranking of the greatest heroes in the history of film, and Atticus ranked number one. The reason why he's so endearing, I think, is not just that he's, well, certainly on the right side of a very contentious issue in American history, of recognizing not just the legal rights of African Americans, but their value, their equal value as people. But more than that, I think it's the way that Atticus lives that draws our attention and our admiration. He doesn't tout himself. He doesn't blow his own horn. He doesn't go around presenting himself as the most capable anything. He simply tries to quietly, persistently, determinedly do his best, do his duty as a father, as an attorney, as a citizen. And I'll be honest, when I watch To Kill a Mockingbird and I think of, of the scriptures, there's lots of scriptures we can draw lessons from, but frequently thinking about Atticus Finch reminds me of Jesus' teaching about the Pharisees, particularly about how the Pharisees teach the right things. They expect all of the right things. They just don't live them out themselves. They're more worried in proving their status and gaining respect and admiration in the society around them rather than living out God's law and God's teaching, some of the very laws 
that they teach others and expect others to live out. Jesus points them out to the disciples and says, that's not the way my followers need to behave. If you want to be great, you don't exalt yourself. The greatest among you will be a servant of all. The greatest among you will be a servant of all. And ironically, in To Kill a Mockingbird, even though Atticus Finch's job is to speak, to promote a case, to advocate for his clients, to advocate even for the system of law, he's notable because he doesn't advocate himself. Rather, he simply seeks to serve. to serve his children as as capable of a single parent as he can be, to serve his profession as as capable of an attorney as he can be, to serve his town as as capable of a citizen as he can be. Here's what's ironic, at least one of the things that's ironic about Atticus Finch. He recognizes the imperfections of the law that he advocates for. He recognizes the inequalities of the law, perhaps better than most people, because he works so intimately with it. But he strives to live in such a way that there is equality under the law. That's why we celebrate his nobility that's why he's such a hero, even as he fights what we know and what historically has often been a losing fight, a fight where the powers that be around him, people he knows by name in this small southern town, well, they choose the convenient prejudices and oppressions that at least seem to hold them up. I'll be honest, in some ways the most memorable scene for me in both the movie and the book does not take place in the courtroom, even though there certainly is a powerful closing argument that Atticus provides in that case. It's rather earlier in the story when the son, Scout's older brother Jem, really wants a rifle. It is the South, after all, and I imagine a lot of his friends and classmates have rifles that they can learn to shoot with, so eventually they can go out hunting, probably with their fathers and uncles and grandfathers. And Atticus won't let him have a gun yet. Well, one day the two kids come home from school and there's a rabid dog coming down the, the street. And of course, in 1930s uh, America, if you saw a rabid dog, you had to put it down. You had to kill it because there was no way to cure it. And so Calpurnia calls, interestingly enough, not the police, but Atticus. And pretty quickly, Atticus and the county sheriff arrive in the same car. And they can see at a distance that the dog is indeed rabid and needs to be put down. And the sheriff grabs the shotgun and then turns to Atticus and says, you take the shot. 
Because it turns out, and ironically, this is something that Calpurnia knew too, turns out that Atticus was one of the best shots in the county. He had that reputation, even though by his own admission he hadn't fired a gun in years. And so after uh, trying to get out of it, he accepted the sheriff's charge. He took the sheriff's duty upon himself, knocked his eyeglasses to the ground, and took care of that unfortunate, unhappy business. How good of a shot is he? After he pulls the trigger, he sees the rabid dog fall, and he turns around. Because while the sheriff has to go and investigate to see how the shot, where the shot hit, Atticus quietly knows. And this unimagined ability is a revelation, particularly to his son, but to both of his children. They had no idea that this man that they'd never even seen hold a gun was one of the best users, one of the best shots, one of the people most gifted and skilled in using a firearm. See, that's the, the deep secret, the real problem with the Pharisees' approach to life and to teaching. It's not that they don't know the right things. It's that in their desire to be seen as the best, well, they forget to imagine that there may be other people more gifted than they are. People who don't go around trying to prove they're the best. People who don't go around talking about how good or great they are. People who simply have those gifts and sometimes show them, but mostly just try to do the best they can throughout the entireties of their lives. I mean, I think usually we think the problem with the Pharisees is that they're hypocrites. They talk a better game than they're willing to live. And boy, that is a problem. But not only do they do that, but in their persistence and their desire to elevate themselves, they naturally, as a consequence, devalue the others around them. And in certain ways, they devalue the way God has created each and every one of them, every one of us. That's the dark taint of any type of superiority. And that's why Jesus rightly tells his disciples, his followers, those who would learn from him and his example, including you and me, our goal in life is not to be admired. Our goal in life is not to tell everybody how good we are, not even how good of a Christian we are, not even how, how faithful we are, how loving we are, how generous we are. Because the trap there is that in doing so, we will almost certainly miss the love and the generosity and the faithfulness of other people around us. And instead, to be truly admired, we need to simply 
seek to serve, to serve Jesus faithfully, to live out the gifts that we have been blessed by God with as fully, as generously, and faithfully as we can. Now, if we do so, there will be others in our midst who will greatly admire us, not for what we say, but for what we do and for how we live. Which is, of course, again, why Atticus is such a hero in the movies, in American literature. How are you trying to humbly live out your faith? your gifts, your talents, your passions and skills? And how are you celebrating it and recognizing those gifts and skills and passions in the lives of other people around you? If you don't think you're doing that enough, let today be an invitation for you to do more of it. To do better at it. To remember that this is an essential way in which Christians follow Jesus' example and the examples of many other people of faith who have followed Jesus' example as well. That cloud of witnesses which surround us. We are invited each day to follow Jesus along the way. And I hope you will accept that invitation again this day.